Greetings and welcome to another edition of the AMSSM Sports Bedcast. I'm your host, Dr. Devin McFadden, and today I'm privileged to be joined by three esteemed guests as we discuss the topic of running medicine. I'd like to thank Chad Asplund, Georgia Southern University Student Health and Sports Medicine, State Sport of Georgia, Burke Fields, Cone Health Family Medicine and Sports Medicine, Greensboro, North, North Carolina, and Colonel Rob O, Sports Medicine, Fort Benning, Georgia, for joining me on the show. I'd also like to acknowledge the BJSM for their collaboration in the recording and production of this episode. Gentlemen, before we dive headfirst into the evidence, I'd like to draw on your years of clinical experience and ask what is the most easily correctable mistake you see amateur runners making, and how do you assist them in making those corrections? Well, this is Bert Fields. I'm a long-time runner myself, and uh, I think there are two things that we see all the time. One of those is a training error, and so I really, every time the patient comes to see me who's a runner, I really try to review their training, exactly what they've done, what they mix into it, and try to give some suggestions that might prevent injury. The other thing I see all the time is hip abduction weakness, so I test that on each runner that I see, and that's a very simple thing to correct with some exercises. This is uh, Rob O. Um, one of the things I see, this is in the new year, and it's relatively new year, and a lot of people have new goals and new set, um, set goals for themselves. So sometimes I see people trying to bite off more than they can chew. So say they want to run a marathon or do even a 10K, but they haven't ran ever. So it's about you know, take it easy, understanding what your limitations are, and don't go too fast and don't go too soon. This is Chad Esplund. I think the biggest problem I see in runners, especially runners that are training for an event or trying to get faster, is that they let uh, the stresses of life and training and other things interfere and they don't recover properly from each hard session, which then leaves them more prone to illness and to injury. Great. Uh, these days, nearly every health organization advocates physical activity as a means of improving cardiovascular health. But do we have objective data to suggest one type of exercise is best, or is all activity created equal? Uh, this bird feels again, and I'll start off by saying I think there is very good evidence in the running literature that running is a very positive thing you can do for your health. And uh, in addition to uh, uh, studies that have looked at things like greater weight loss, greater cardiovascular fitness. Uh, there are some very longitudinal studies as long as 21 years which show reduced disability and mortality among runners. So while all types of exercise have benefit, running is certainly a very fast way to get that type of fitness and protection that you need for your cardiovascular system. So this is Rob. I guess it really depends on the goal, Devin. I mean, is it for weight loss? Is it for cardiovascular risk reduction? And really, the, the cool thing about exercise is that we actually have pretty good concordance from multiple organizations of what the minimal exercises are for health. And that's just health in general and not specifically for weight loss. For example, the American Heart Association and also the Centers of Disease Control uh, recommend 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise spread throughout the week. And that can be in 10 minute bursts at a time at minimum. So there's not a lot of uh, evidence to me that says one exercise is better than the other. To me, it's any exercise is better than nothing. And there was a new study that was published in JAMA just this month that has a study and it might have been seen in the news of the Weekend Warriors. 
And basically it says, if you do any type of exercise, that will reduce your risk of dying. So my philosophy is, hey, do something rather than nothing. And for the weight loss per se, I think we have a fallacy that we can run away your weight. I think time and time again, we have to look at what we're putting in your mouth in order to fuel the exercise and not uh, using the exercise to eat. So I kind of say, eat to exercise, don't exercise to eat. Bert and Rob, both great points that you would make. I think, you know, the best form of exercise is, is something that people will do. I think anything that gets people active is better than nothing. There have been many studies to show that sitting uh, for a prolonged period of time may be as harmful as smoking or other adverse health effects. So really, any exercise activity that will encourage people to get up, get out the door, um, is better than nothing. The thing that makes running such a great exercise is that all you really need is shoes and uh, a place to run. You don't need a lot of equipment, and it can be done in most most any place and most any time. And so it, it, it's portable, uh, it's easy to do, and I think that's what makes running so appealing to so many people. Now, while musculoskeletal complaints make up the majority of the office visits a clinician sees in competitive runners, what other issues should an astute sports medicine physician be aware of? I would like to mention one, and historically we've known that a lot of runners may experience some respiratory difficulties, uh, particularly early studies of Olympic athletes and competitive racers showed lots of problems with exercise-induced bronchospasm, and a lot of patients weren't aware that they might have had asthma or other conditions even before getting into running. So I think it's important to pay attention to that. The other issue is that running uh, causes a real sort of stress on the system. And so it's interesting how many runners may have some respiratory illness. A recent study of BJSM in 2016 showed that one in 13 runners had uh, some sort of acute illness in the 8 to 12 days before a race. We also know that after a hard race, like a marathon or a half marathon, two to f uh, runners are two to four times more likely to experience an upper or lower respiratory infection. You know, runners who are top competitors, um, and it's really hard to hear this, but sometimes you have to take a look at their training schedule. And to me, overtraining is one of those things that is kind of insidious and can really be hard to hear in some of those top competitors. Now, you're running 50 to 100 miles a week, and you're trying to train for your event that you're doing, and for some reason, you start seeing decreased performance with increased training loads. And so that, to me, sometimes is a warning sign that says maybe you're doing a little bit too much, and sometimes they need to rest for a couple of weeks to reset their system. And we know that a lot of studies show that the immune system is, is dysfunctional when we overtrain. So that's one of the things that, uh, to me, and the top competitors that we look, should look at. I think it's easy for people who are trying to be very competitive to look at those runners who are faster or are winning the races and think that if I could only get thinner, I would run faster. And I think it's a, it's a challenge for runners to really settle into their optimal weight um, and not focus on just solely getting thinner or weighing less, as that can lead to disordered eating or even more serious than eating disorder, which can also lead to serious health consequences, as well as significantly decreased performance. I totally 100% agree with you. And I think one of the things that we, we see a lot um, is that they don't look at strength training as a potential way to increase their training 
load differently and cross training. So that's that's to me critical. That it's not just running and weight issues. Over. Rob, I I agree. And as a, a former competitive uh, college and professional runner, uh, the weight room was somewhere I never wanted to be. Um, <laughs> and so, but as a as a older, more mature runner now, I understand that the strength putting the time into the strength and cross training helps me be more resilient and less prone to injury and doesn't pack on any extra pounds or anything that uh, would hinder me. And so I've really tried to do a, a much better job of getting one to two days of resistance training in per week. I would have to agree. And after 50 years, I'm finally doing core exercises. Uh, so not only did I not do weights, I don't think I did any core exercises for the first 50 years of my running career. <laughs> a lot of the research these days seems to focus on footwear. Barefoot and minimalist running have been promoted as ways to prevent injury by reducing ground impact forces and returning humans to a more evolutionarily natural state of activity. What biomechanical changes occur with barefoot running, and what does the evidence tell us about injury incidents? Hey, great topic, Devin, and this is a topic of my interest, and we could spend an hour on this alone, but I'm going to try to dial, dial it down, down to what I think is the essence. Really, people who wear shoes are heel strikers, and really the estimates look at about 85% of those traditional shoe wears heel strike when they run. But the question I have is, to, and to ponder, is that really the most, what I call, natural form of running? And it's really interesting. If you put someone on a treadmill and r tell them to run barefoot, can they really do it? Well, absolutely, they can. And if you look at their strike, over 95% of them will forefoot strike. And probably because evolutionary and whatever it is, landing on your heel running really hurts, and it's probably not appropriate. And to me, that's the most significant concept of what we think of minimal shoes and running these shoes do. Uh, and there's a lot of studies looking at that. We don't we're not deal with that right now, but a lot of things looking at the gait changes and biomechanical changes, and simply put, is forefoot striking and not overstriding leads to less forces on the knee and the tibia. And it's just a matter of physics, the force of the strikes and where the force vectors go. So if you forefoot strike and land without overstriding, the forces go straight up the leg into the spine where the forces are more naturally absorbed. So we kind of know that maybe that this could potentially help with things like patellofemoral pain syndrome, chronic shin splints, medial stress syndrome, and that may potentially prevent uh, injuries in this. We just don't have the data yet, but those are some of the concepts that the research was, is going to push towards. I'm a little concerned. I read Born to Run, and I looked at a lot of the literature that was showing the different changes that you would see with moving to a four-foot strike, and I was always a four-foot runner, so I'd never really thought about those to start with. But the reality is what I've seen in my clinic has been almost the opposite, that I've seen that the physiologic studies don't correlate with what I saw with the people who are trying it. So there may be some difficulties in implementing this. It may be that our uh, design of study is wrong because we took a bunch of runners out to look at them running barefoot, as you said, on the treadmill. They don't tend to hit on their heel, but you put them on sand. A lot of the ones that were heel strikers went back to heel striking. So I'm not sure if the studies are far enough along to let us know, should we really be making this physiologic change? Is it more natural? Or is it more natural only for a smaller subset of people? One of the things is people read Born to Run. They really, this minimalist movement really took off. 
and what I've seen is a lot of people who have made a, a too rapid transition to minimalist footwear, uh, which then left them up injured. I think there's been several studies that have demonstrated that even people in the, the Vibram shoes or even the New Balance Minimus still found with video studies that they were still heel striking despite shifting to the minimal footwear. So I think to gain the benefits safely, you need to make a gradual transition to a minimalist approach. You need to start training slowly and work on a midfoot, forefoot strike. Um, and I think it's more than just the shoes uh, that you need to get the benefit. You actually need to retrain your gait, um, which will help you get some more efficiency while minimizing your, your risk of injury. Hey, Chad, that's a, that's, that's a really great point. I, I agree with you 100%, you and Bert. Um, and I don't think it's the shoes. And I think that's where I think we get, we get stuck on the shoes. And I think it's really the strike pattern that we're going to see new research on. And the studies that shown the more injuries use actually transitional shoes. And um, that's something uh, uh, really of my interest to say, maybe it's not the shoe per se, it's maybe more the, the gait. That's a, uh, this bird, that's a really interesting comment. You know, my fear is that you can remember for years when physicians used to say that anabolic steroids didn't help build strength in athletes and the athletes knew better and, and <laughs> right. that way. I, I think back to when I was a pretty good competitive runner, I spent two weeks living on the same hallway with the Kenyan Olympic training team for marathon 10k 5k and those guys all started as barefoot runners and every one of them was then in shoes because once they got good enough to make the national team they were given shoes (laughs) (laughs) so i started thinking well maybe the athletes because when i watch the world championships when i watch the olympics i'm not seeing the athletes run barefoot not since a bb bikila years ago that's right that's right so i'm curious i think we may be on to some reasons to help with gait but i'm not sure it's the shoe and i I don't think we want to go without shoes probably oh i I agree with you we do have to have some shotted wear but what what the gold standard is is yet to be determined i think i think another great point to think about is when you get to the the pinnacle of efficiency and those runners that are most successful if you think about your african runners and you think about your high level elites Um, You know, they're running anywhere between 70 to 100 to 120 miles per week, and the body has a way of finding efficiency. And so whether you're wearing shoes with a 12-millimeter drop or a 0-millimeter drop or running barefoot, your body over time will try to minimize the use of energy. You'll become more efficient, which then shifts your stride a little bit shorter to more of a midfoot stride. And so I think a lot of those things that you look at with the Africans or those real high mileage runners, I think the body seeks to find a a sense of efficiency, which is a more center of mass, midfoot, forefoot strike uh, with a faster cadence. And so I don't know if it's the mileage, whether it's the gait retraining or the shoes or a combination of all three that really gets you the best, the best of all of it. Yeah, great, great. Hey, H, hey, Devin, is it okay if I could talk about the kind of the definition of minimalist shoes? I'm not sure if, if we even understand that. And so if we can't even understand that, I think that that's, that's difficult to figure out what shoe to wear. Just really quickly, the shoe has three parts to it, a basic traditional shoe. They have upper, which is houses your foot. They have outer, like a tread, like you see the Vibram treads of the outer. 
And then the big thing is the midsole, and that's where the controversy comes in. So minimalist shoes, typically, depending on who defines it and what research defines it, really has a pretty flexible upper, a wide toe box, and really minimal cushioning, if not zero cushioning, and no like insert at all to minimize that. In some of the traditional shoes, that's where all the um, the, the flash and the, the G-Wiz uh, new technology comes in, the cushions, the shocks, the gels, all those things comes into your midsole. So that's just the shoe itself and what it comprises. Then you got lifts, and that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. So minimalist shoes typically had a drop from the heel to the um, forefoot about four millimeters or less and really have no midsole. And so that's kind of the drop. But then, then you add the complexity is the stack height, is how big is that outer or that, that mid, and mid cushion. So things are changing dramatically in the shoe world. And I don't even know what we think about what exactly defines a minimalist shoe at this point. I think it's fascinating that we have as many runners, or in fact, in my clinic, it's a lot more who have moved to these ultra cushion shoes like the Hoka right, and yep. others. And, uh, particularly a lot of my ultra runners have moved to those uh, as we have moving the other way toward more of a minimalist shoe. I think there's been an interesting trend that with the, the big boom in, in minimalist takeoff with the Vibrams and the New Balance Minimist, and then the injuries occurred, and then sh uh, shoe companies decided to find a middle ground with shoes at about a four to eight millimeter drop, um, which I define sort of as elemental shoes and that they tend to give runners the cushion that they need without putting them at an extreme ramp angle. And so I think that um, the pendulum swung quickly towards very low drop. Now it's swinging back. And as Bert mentioned, these um, Hoka's or Maximal shoes um, even have, uh, they still have about a four millimeter drop. Or if you look at Ultra, they have a zero millimeter drop. But they, but they have more between you and the, and the road than the original uh, minimal shoes. Great point, Chad. Uh, the other tenet of minimalist running movement is a purported performance improvement. Uh, we've talked about the elite runners. Is there any strong evidence to support a performance benefit associated with the use of minimalist footwear, or any footwear for that matter? I've really not been impressed that the evidence has yet shown performance benefits that we could clearly say were due to the footwear. Um, so me, yes, there's absolutely a difference. And there's a new study that to, to me that makes a lot of sense. So bottom line, if you typically go with the minimal shoes with no cushioning, flexible upper and minimal outerwear, um, the lighter shoes increases performance. To me, that makes complete sense. And this, there was a recent study showed that there was a linear response. So a treadmill study showed that slower 3K run times by up to 1% to 2% with the increased weight of a shoe. So performance-wise, I think if it's a lighter the shoe, you could potentially run faster. The question is, what are you going to do with injury risk? That's, that's kind of unknown. But isn't that an intermediate outcome, uh, Rob? I'll make the point that this was on a treadmill. You saw one to two percent gain, which is within that margin of error. And what we're really looking at is being able to take some people and show that by changing their footwear, by controlling it in a randomized controlled fashion, that we see a significant performance improvement. And I think that sort of hard data is still lacking. Uh, I, yeah, no, I think I think this was randomized, and those who had more shoes, I mean, this is a prospective look at it, and you add more weight to the shoe, 
and they added weight versus not weight, these guys performed faster. And they didn't know what shoe they were getting. It looked exactly the same. So they ran the same 3K, and they added weight in three different measures, I believe. And then they showed a decreased, decreased performance. I, I think the, the part that gets complicated with a study like that is you can still have a racing flat with a 10-millimeter drop, even though it's very light. And then I don't know if you look at a shoe with a 10 millimeter drop as a minimal shoe or whether it's just minimal in its weight alone or whether it's sort of minimal in the definition of low heel drop. But I agree. I think the studies will support that running economy improves and oxygen utilization goes down the lighter the shoe is. As, uh, as Bert said, it's hard to translate stuff from inside the lab to outside on onto the uh, race course because of a variety of outside factors. Yeah, and I think the crux is to me is not the, the shoe type itself. It's actually the weight of the shoe. That makes, to me, the most sense. Um, and and typically, if you look at the minimalist shoes, they tend to be, uh, they weigh a little bit lighter than the traditional, shot, the traditional shoes that we run in. Well, I, I would agree with many of those points. I, I think the challenge might be to look at I still think the factors like comfort, how the runner felt in the shoe, may have a tremendous influence on racing and time performance. So without being able to factor those in, I'm not sure how much we can say is purely the weight of the shoe or even the drop of the shoe. You can certainly make a fairly high cushion shoe that's very light. Like the Hocus. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Chad, Bert, Rob, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to speak with me today. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening. We hope you found this time valuable and that you'll join us soon for the part two of this episode on running medicine of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, the United States Army, or the United States government. Mm -hmm.